You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Uh, it's, it seems to be becoming something of a tradition uh, for me to get up here and preach the Sunday after the New Year's. I don't know what that, that says about uh, me, but uh, I didn't get to do that last year, 2021, but in 2020, um, I was able to uh, preach a message out of Hebrews 9, and uh, I don't need to remind you what I preached that Sunday. I'm sure you all remember very well. Uh, in preparing for this message, though, uh, I thought I would think... Uh, I wanted to think back about uh, what has happened in this period of time between that sermon, January 2020, and what has happened and what has happened now, January 2022. I don't know about you, but that time period has felt like an absolute lifetime. Uh, Corey and I were were just buying our first house. She was getting ready to start her final semester of in-class work before she student taught, and baby Walter wasn't even on the radar yet. But as I thought back, I was reminded uh, of a sermon series that we started in August of 2020, which was Faithfulness in All Seasons. We focused on the faithfulness of God in seasons of great trial throughout the Old Testament, and it was and is a timely series given what we were going through in the midst of 2020. The onset of and the subsequent controversies and tragedies of the pandemic stood as a stark reminder that we do, in fact, live in a fallen and broken world. And yet, like a spring of fresh water, the Lord provided for us. We moved here to the Temple Baptist building and answered a prayer years in the making. We welcomed new babies, we had weddings, and week after week, we gathered here to hear from the Lord simple mercy that that 2020 taught us, taught me, we shouldn't take for granted. And now here we are, here I am, two years on from that Sunday morning at the Fairbanks. My wife has finished school and and survived student teaching while pregnant and and began teaching her own class. I've transitioned to working uh, from home full time uh, and, and out of the daily interactions with other people and COVID scares and all that stuff. And, and we're parents to a, a wonderful little boy. Truly, we have experienced the faithfulness of God in all seasons. This morning, I have the pleasure of returning us to a series, uh, to our series in the Gospel of John, a series aptly named Life in His Name. And as we've navigated 2020 and 2021, now we stand at the beginning of 2022 in need as much now as ever of the abundant life that only Christ Jesus can offer us. So before we jump in, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that has come in the last two years good and bad, we know, Lord, that you are sovereign over it all and that you will work your uh, glory through it all for our good. We thank you for the highs and the lows. We thank you that through it all, you are the same, sovereign over creation. And that in your mercy, you have given us your word 
and this body here together that we can gather with to be encouraged, to be convicted by, and to do life together with. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us this morning as we dive into your word in the book of John. Well, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 1 through 21 this morning. And since it's been a little bit since we've been in the book of John, uh, I wanted to just quickly recap kind of where we've been so that we have a little bit of an idea of of where we are. So at the end of of chapter 9, we see Jesus in interaction with a blind man. He spits in the dirt, wipes it on his eyes, tells him to go and wash the pool of Siloam. He can see. And then the Pharisees and the religious leaders are aware of this and, and they're perplexed and, frankly, kind of annoyed because this blind man claims that Jesus healed him. They don't like Jesus very much. So, so rather than rejoicing with this blind man, they just interrogate him. This man who has uh, who's been struggling his entire life, begging in the streets just because he can't see and, and, and there's no one to take care of him, these religious leaders in the community uh, interrogate him because this guy that they don't like healed him. So this blind man, now healed, becomes a pawn in their ongoing vendetta against Jesus. And he's treated poorly because he won't play along with Uh, their attempts to villainize Jesus. So they throw him out of the synagogue and back into the streets. And it's here at the end of chapter 9 that we see the man finally sees Jesus face to face. And a stark contrast is presented for us. Verses 39 through 41 of chapter 9. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. You see, the blind man had faith in Jesus despite not being able to see him, and yet his faith has healed him. Whereas the religious leaders that Jesus is referring to, they were able to see Jesus and his works. And yet they hardened their hearts in unbelief. Jesus' final words of the chapter are a condemnation of these religious leaders' perceived right standing and superiority. And so this brings us to our text this morning, a continuation of this interaction. Jesus has done what he typically does when he has interactions with the religious leaders and the Pharisees. He's turned their perceived understanding of a biblical concept and turned it on their head. And most of the time, Jesus just kind of drops the mic and walks away. But this time, instead of letting it die there, Jesus, uh, with the light of this incident with the blind man in view, takes it as an opportunity to make some pretty bold statements here. So that his hearers in the moment, and us included, can begin to really grasp what it is that Jesus is claiming to be and what he's here to do. So, if you will, we'll uh, read our passage starting in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. 
But he who opens and enters the door by, uh, by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This is a figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door to the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he's a demon, and he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of a man impressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes? here we are. We have the religious leaders and those who are gathered around all, all waiting to see what Jesus is going to say next. Jesus just finished bringing some, some real heat in that last conversation. He's, he's bringing this whole blind versus seeing dynamic, this, this guilt versus guiltless thing. And to follow it up, Jesus is like, you know what? Let's talk about sheep. And I have... At least I, in this situation, probably would have been like, sheep. Jesus launches into this, this sort of parable, a little unlike the, the parables that you see in the other Gospels, in that Jesus doesn't just like tell a story and then kind of explain it. He's, he's going to use this parable and expand the metaphors throughout. He says in the first five, six verses, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter... The sheepfold by the door, but climbs into it by another way. This man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow free from him, because they do not know his voice. This is a figure speech Jesus used with them, and they did not understand what he was saying. But the reality is that uh, this sheep-shepherd imagery, while it may have kind of taken them by surprise, confused them a little bit at first, the reality is that this is a pretty common theme throughout Scripture, a common image used. And these religious leaders should have known that. They should have been picking up on this. So to set the scene here for us today, we might have these notions of what shepherding looks like. And if you're like me, it's, 
this old Scottish guy in a kilt with some dogs leading sheep around the highlands. But the reality of the first century shepherding was a lot different. These men lived with their flocks. We just had Christmas, and part of the Christmas story is that the angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds who were watching their flocks by night. Shepherding then was hardcore, and it was deeply personal. The shepherds knew their sheep, and the sheep knew them. They would hear his voice and, and follow, even if they were within a mixed herd, because, hey, that's the dude who, like, guides us to good pasture and then, like, brings us back into the pen so that we don't get eaten by wolves. So we're, we're going to listen to this guy. So the shepherd has this deep sense of personal responsibility and duty of care to the sheep. And this would have been very well understood in their time. So throughout Scripture, we see that imagery used time and time again as an example of the relationship dynamic between God and his people, the sheep-shepherd dynamic. You see it in popular verses like Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Isaiah 40, 10 through 11, The sovereign Lord tends to his flock like a shepherd. And even in Matthew 18, the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go and fetch the one who's lost. The imagery is everywhere. So it's imperative that we at least have some sort of understanding of it. Jesus sets the stage here. When the sheep were not out in the fields grazing, they had these large enclosures, usually backed up against the foot of some hills or some mountains with stones and briars up so that, that predators could not have easy access to the flock. And there was one entrance, one exit to this. And usually you had the shepherd or some sort of hired hand who would man this gate, this entrance, and allow those who belonged to be there to go in and out as they needed and to reject entrance to those who didn't. So what Jesus is saying essentially in these first couple verses is that it stands to reason that if somebody is entering this sheep pen by any other path other than the gate, that they don't have good intent in mind the sheep. And then he points out that it's not just those who enter in, those thieves and robbers, but, but there are also strangers, imposters, who will come, they're bold enough to come to the gate and entrance and, and attempt to call and draw the sheep out. But he says the sheep, they don't recognize their voice and so they flee from it. Only the true shepherd of the sheep is allowed to come to the gate and call out his sheep to pasture. Simple enough, Right? We can, we can track with this. Well, they don't. And bless John, because he wants us to understand that they don't understand. It's like Jesus is looking around at these faces of these religious leaders, these guys who should know all this, and they're just like, like nothing, no registering. So here's where we need to introduce a supporting text. Something that kind of gives us an idea of, of what Jesus is alluding to and what they should have understood. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel the prophet, in the first four verses, kind of gets at what Jesus is talking about. He says in verse 1 through 4, The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy, or prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who take care, only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with wool, and you slaughter the choice animals, but you don't care for the flock. 
you do not have, you've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So Jesus is not so subtly referring to these leaders and their treatment of the blind man at the end of chapter 9 and saying, hey, that's you. See, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these religious leaders were called by God to shepherd the flock of Israel as under-shepherds to God himself. And we see throughout the Old Testament that they were really, really bad at this. You have Ezekiel 34, the passage that we just read as an example, but there's so many others. Half of the Old Testament is God sending prophets to preach judgment against these poor shepherds. I don't mean poor like, oh, poor, like, but like terrible shepherds, bad shepherds. Isaiah 56, 9 through 12, the prophet says the watchmen of the flock are blind. Jeremiah 23, 1 through 4, the Lord says that the shepherds have destroyed and scattered the flock. In Zechariah 11, where the Lord pronounces judgment against the worthless and foolish shepherds. So Jesus is calling them thieves and robbers. He's calling them the imposters at the gate. They do not have the sheep's interest at heart. Only ill intent and selfish motives. And we have literally just seen that play out in the story of the blind man. They don't get it. They're not understanding. So Jesus decides to be a little more obvious. So in verse 7 he says, So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Anyone who enters by me will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So it's important to note here that that Jesus is not explaining the parable in verses 1 through 5. He's expanding upon it. He's building on these key themes, these features of the shepherding analogy that he's using, and he's adding to it metaphor. He's saying, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus now is not merely the shepherd who comes to the gate, but he is the gate itself. And it is by him that the sheep come and go. And he goes on to say, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Again, not an explanation, but an expansion of the metaphor. Jesus is setting up for us a contrast of sorts between the thieves and robbers, the bad shepherds, those with selfish intentions and cruel treatment against that of Jesus. The gate, who is a symbol of the sheep's security as they come into the fold and out as they look for their plenty. So it is important here then to note that thieves and robbers are also now expanded to mean more than just failed under-shepherds, as we've just alluded to, those failed under-shepherds of Israel. But then Jesus adds something to it. He says, but the, the all who came before me is now expanded to include those who came pretending to be the shepherd, those imposters at the gate. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, he notes that this is a reference uh, being made to messianic pretenders, those who promise the people freedom but who lead them into war and suffering and slavery. So it's important to understand a bit of the context of what is going on in the days that Jesus is around. This is 
at the height of the Roman occupation of Israel. And there was not an, uh, a shortage of those who believed that it was the Messiah's responsibility to come and free Israel from Roman rule. That the Messiah would be a military leader. And many had come up to this point and had failed. Who had led their people, the people of Israel, in these failed attempts to overthrow Rome. Cast them out of Israel. So Jesus is saying, yeah, those guys, also not good shepherds. So this would serve as a warning to us as modern readers. Surely each one of us here probably has a story, but we can understand and probably come up with numerous examples of these under-shepherds, these pastors and church leaders who failed in their duties to rightly care for the flock, who fleeced their herds for their own gain. So Jesus is both pointing to the actions of the Pharisees in their day, but he's also warning us and them that there are no shortage of wolves in sheep's clothing. These messianic pretenders coming to offer you all that your heart could desire if you would only follow them. So then the warning is twofold. We must be on guard against both terrible and horrible shepherds, but also messianic There are imposters at the gate who beckon us to follow them and will lead us into danger. So, to illustrate this point, I am a product of my own generation. I'll admit that. I enjoy social media far more than I should. Specifically, Instagram Reels. Okay? So, for the uninitiated, Instagram Reels is kind of like TikTok, but with less stigma. But regardless of what app that you use, Reels, TikTok, whatever, Vine 2, if anybody uses that, what, what they are is just this constant barrage of messaging over and over again. And, and in my experience, the algorithm likes to throw up in my face what I call success bro accounts. Okay, so I'll explain. Success bro accounts. If you spend any time on these apps, you're going to come across some of the more infamous accounts and trends. And one of those is Success Bro. It's like, it's like Gen Z's version of Get Rich Quick. Okay? So usually what happens is you've got some punk kid sitting with like cool clothes and a cool hat on against some weird background. And he's telling uh, himself that's dressed up in not as cool outfits all of his tips and tricks and hacks and how to get rich quick. He's going to give them uh, tips on how to invest and cheat the system and, and whatever else. It's just, it's silly. And on the surface of it, you would just be like, okay, roll your eyes and move on. But, but as you sit there, and I'm telling you, it's addicting. You sit there and you scroll and you just get this stuff over and over again. And at first I was kind of like, just, okay, like that's mildly interesting, but mostly just really annoying. Man, over time I was kind of like, that 17-year-old kind of has a point. Maybe all I need to do is just invest in crypto and I'll be a millionaire in five years. They all preach the same thing. Do X and you'll be successful. Not everybody's willing to do X, so you've got to be like a real one. You've got to be motivated. You've got to be real. All you need to do is start investing in crypto. All you need to do is worship Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and 
and you're going to be set. Like, how many of you guys, I've started to see this commercial, how many of you guys have seen the Matt Damon, like, crypto.com commercials? So if you haven't seen it, Matt Damon, of all people, starts walking through this, like, weird spatial museum and starts talking about how, like, throughout history, many have uh, almost, you know, succeeded, almost done something great. Life is full of people who almost did something. And then he quotes that Latin proverb, fortune favors the brave. And the messaging is clear. If you're not willing to invest in crypto, you're going to be just like all those people who almost history almost remembered. But it's across the spectrum. We see the constant barrage of advertisements during election seasons of People making all sorts of campaign promises and just telling you if you vote for so-and-so, everything's going to be fine. Sports, politics, money, celebrity, this person or this thing or this ideology is all you need for X, Y, Z. Fill in the blank. What they don't tell you is that they are cruel masters, thieves and robbers. The more you follow, and the more you are led astray, the more profound the consequences. What those success bro accounts don't tell you is that there are countless people who bet their lives on XYZ and were left devastated when it failed. That behind the campaign promises and the artificially provoked controversies are lives being ruined and crushed for someone else's gain. Countless sheep ravaged by cruel shepherds and false Besides, Conversely, though, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, you might be sitting there and you might be saying, okay, well, you're just telling me that a bunch of people are going to tell me that all you have to do is this and you get success. So what makes Jesus any different? The difference is the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He doesn't fleece the sheep for his own benefit. So in verse 9, we are once again met with this metaphor of the door and the gate. Jesus now further expands that metaphor, though he's not just the symbol of safety and plenty that he he's leading, uh, alluding to in verse 7, but now he is the exclusive point at which sheep may enter and come into safety or go out to forage and pasture. There's a bit of foreshadowing here to John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is Jesus' assertion then that to those gathered and to those of us who come later, that Jesus is the exclusive path. The statement stands as a bold condemnation, not only of the lies of the culture of the day, but of today as well, but also against every other religion. This idea that, that all paths lead to heaven meets its sternest opposition in Jesus' words here. Statements like, I am the door. Leave readers like us with the uncomfortable but necessary task of squaring Jesus' words with our own objects of worship. 
we are reminded again that they are thieves and robbers. And thieves come only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus, however, has come to bring life for his sheep. Carson again notes, this is a proverbial way of insisting that there is only one means of receiving eternal life, one source of knowledge of God, only one fount of spiritual nourishment, only one basis for spiritual security, and that's Jesus alone. The world will seek its humanistic political saviors only to too late realize that they've been duped, that they blatantly confiscate personal property, they come only to steal that they ruthlessly trample human life under their feet will come only to kill. That they contemptuously savage all the valuable, all that is valuable. They come only to destroy. So then Jesus is right. It is not the Christian doctrine of heaven that is the myth, but the humanistic dream of an earthly utopia. Then Jesus is going to switch metaphors on us. Not exactly being easy to follow here, is he? He says in verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them and he flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Again, contrasting himself with the failed shepherds of Ezekiel 34. But now he's comparing those failed shepherds to hired hands. A good and noble and worthy shepherd is going to care for his flock even as far as risking his own life to protect them from predators. But this doesn't define the leaders of Israel. They're more like hired hands. They're paid to care for the flock and are willing to do so so long as it doesn't cost them anything more than their time, maybe the occasional sunburn. When that wolf comes, we see their true covers. When danger arises, these hired hands flee and allow the flock to be ravaged. Why? Because they don't care about the sheep. They're hired hands. it's true. These Pharisees didn't care about the flock. That's evident in their interaction with the blind man. Here was their chance to rejoice with a man who has spent his entire life blind and begging in the streets. And instead, they threw him out. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Verse 14, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to me, to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. This is a good time to note that if you're interested in studying scripture or diving deeper into the word of God, one of the foundational principles of biblical interpretation is understanding simple literary devices. You don't need to be a scholar to understand the Bible. You just need to understand a few key things about how these, these authors wrote. 
One of those simple literary devices is repetition. If an idea or a phrase or a word is repeated in a text, it's probably significant. And this passage is chock full of it. We see Jesus repeat, thieves and robbers, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I lay my life down for the sheep. So it stands to reason that these are significant titles, significant statements. So he says, I am the good shepherd. He's not like the other bad shepherds of Israel. He's not like the hired hands or the thieves and the robbers. No, he is the good shepherd. How do we know? Because his sheep know him and he knows them. He doesn't have to sneak into the pen. He doesn't have to stand at the gate and try and coax the sheep to him. They come freely because they know his voice. This is where Jesus is going to make a pretty important claim. Jesus is grounding uh, the relationship between the sheep and shepherd in the intimate knowledge that he has for those sheep and that they have for him in the divinely intimate relationship that he has with God the Father. And that's the difference between a good shepherd and the bad ones. The deep love and intimacy that is shared. The shepherd loves the sheep. And they love him. Finally, we see this repetition thing again when Jesus is talking about laying down his life for the sheep. The nature of love is self-sacrificial. The Son of God sacrifices heavenly splendor for earthly form. The Father sacrifices the Son for rebellious creation. The Son freely lays down his life for the sheep. And so on, and so on, and so on. But why? Because he has to gather all of the sheep to himself. All of his sheep. Verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. And here's where the major issue needs to be addressed. Okay? Jesus is going to hearken back to verses 1 through 5. We're going to get a little allegory here. The sheep in that pen are Israel. And Jesus is the shepherd who comes to call his sheep. And his sheep hear his voice and follow, and, lead, and he leads them out to pasture. It says he calls his own sheep by name, which assumes that there are sheep in that pen that are not the shepherd's sheep. Those that are the unbelieving Jews. Then Jesus is going to foreshadow a little bit to the glory of Acts 10, and he's going to say that there are sheep that are not of this fold, Israel. And he has to bring them in as well. And it's those sheep that are the believing Gentiles, us, called from all corners of the world throughout history. And again, we'll see some foreshadowing, this time to John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, when he sets, uh, when these two sets of sheep will form one flock and one shepherd. So in this passage, Jesus necessarily puts limits on who the Son is laying down his life for. He's not laying his life down for all of the sheep. He's laying his life down for his sheep. Be clear, it is clear in Scripture that the Lamb, that Jesus is the Lamb that comes to take away the sins of the world, but, but just as clearly we see that there is a peculiar relationship between Jesus and His sheep. 
John 6, 37, to those whom the Father has given me. John 15, 16 and 19, those who have, he has chosen out of the world, just to name a few. So this is one flock, and it is this flock that he lays his, down, his life down for, and that is the church. And we see Paul echo this in Ephesians 5, 25. Christ Jesus laid down his life for the church out of his life. But this is the reason why Jesus had to come. It's important that this unified flock for which he lays down his life it's so important so that that he ties it to the love between the Father and himself. This Trinitarian relationship. Verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. This isn't just the goodwill of Jesus coming to earth. He's doing this at the beckoning of the Father, and he does so obediently because of his love for the Father. What is not being said in this verse is that God's love for Jesus is conditional upon Jesus obeying his commands to lay down his life, but rather that out of unconditional love for the Father, the Son being that the Son will obey perfectly. Jesus is giving us an insight into the foundation of the gospel. Jesus is not saying that the Father withholds his love until Jesus meets some requirement, and that is laying down his life. No, rather the love of the son, that the Son has for the Father that means he freely carries out the will of the Father. And the love of the Father towards the Son that grants him the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we do not need to meet some requirement to warrant God's love. That requirement has been met in the sacrifice of Jesus. It is that act of mercy and love through which Jesus has freed us up to respond in obedience and in love we do so gladly. Jesus is making clear here that that he will lay down his life freely. The authorities that would arrest him and crucify him do so only because Jesus is allowable. Jesus promises that in power and might he will take that life back up again. The death of Jesus means nothing if we do not have the resurrection. The act of obedience of laying down his life for his sheep is so that he might receive the glory that the Father is due him, which he freely extends to us. I know that's a lot. Anytime I start thinking about the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, my head starts spinning as well, but... The crowd and us today are left to respond to Jesus' claims because he's made some claims here. He's warned us against the worthless shepherds of Israel and their dereliction of duty and against those who have come before and since who have claimed to be the true shepherd. He's without the shadow of a doubt claimed to be the good shepherd, the promised Messiah of Israel, the sole gate through which man may have access to God be the Son of God in flesh, ready to, take, to lay down his life and to take it back up again so that the sheep may have abundant life. How do we do, what are we left to do here? How are we going to respond? 
First, let's see how they responded. 19, verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he's a demon, insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. How can a demon open the eyes of the blind? What we know about Jesus' interactions with the Jews, uh, and then specifically the Jewish leaders, means that we shouldn't be surprised to hear that many of them still did not believe. And in fact, many of them have become even more steadfast and ridiculous in their unbelief. But we do see that there are others. Others who are at least curious. Refuting this nonsensical idea that, that Jesus is somehow demon-possessed and healing blind people. You can, you can almost hear the doubt rising up in their minds. There's something to this. We don't get to hear their response, but, but like them, they have to, we have to respond. No one can stay ambivalent about Jesus forever. You will either hear his voice and his words and say to, him, uh, say to yourself, this is nonsense. These are the ramings of a, an insane man, a demon-possessed man. Or you'll hear Jesus' voice and you'll follow him out of the sheep pen and into the field. Author and apologist C.S. Lewis popularized this idea of liar, lunatic, bored. The idea being that one cannot stay neutral about Jesus. When you read his claims, when you hear what he said, you either have to square with yourself that he's a liar, he's crazy, or that he's truly the Lord. We've talked at length this morning about the cruelty and brutality of bad shepherds and how easy it is to fall underneath their spell. So much so that it would be natural to say, well, of course, I don't want to follow those kinds of people. But we do. But what I don't want to miss here is all that Jesus means when he says, I am the good Not as if Jesus is seeing the, the bar set for him by Israel's poor under-shepherds and these false messiahs and saying, yeah, I can do better than that. He's saying, not even close. They have so missed the mark. And we need only return to Ezekiel 34 to get a picture of what is meant by the good shepherd. Being in verse 11, he says, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in good pasture. And the mountains and the heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land and they will, be, they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend to my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. 
I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, that the sleek and the strong will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Praise God, that's good news. Each of us, like sheep, have gone astray, scattered by the seductive lies of false messiahs, treated brutally by terrible under-shepherds. And at some point, we are going to look up, and we are going to find ourselves on the hills of some foreign land, isolated and in danger. We are in need of a good shepherd. Praise God, 2,000 years ago, right about this time, the good shepherd came in the flesh, calling out to his sheep to come and follow. And in the greatest act of mercy and grace, he laid down his life for them. Our sin, our iniquity, laid on his shoulders. Not just to have in power and in might, he took his life up again and rose from the dead so that we might have abundant life in his name. This is not a fairy tale. So I want to close this morning by saying, for many of us, we've heard the voice of the Good Shepherd calling to us and, and we have followed him into good pasture. It doesn't mean that life has always been easy or straightforward, that we haven't faced other dangers, but, but we have the Good Shepherd looking after us. And so to you this morning, I say simply, be alert. Don't follow after the false messiahs. Don't fall victim to the wolves in sheep's clothing. Don't entrust your care to worthless shepherds. For those of you who have not trusted in Christ this morning, I ask you, pick up your heads. Look around you. See the remains of ravaged sheep who have fallen prey to the wolves. Where have you put your faith? Have you placed it at the feet of messianic pretenders, of politicians, of billionaire philanthropists? Have you placed it at the altar of a false god? Perhaps you've placed it in yourself. The reality is they are cruel shepherds. Always demanding more and more and more until you have nothing left and then they'll discard you. I urge you this morning to listen closely. Hear the voice of the good shepherd calling out to you. Calling you to lay your burdens on him. To follow him in faith to good pasture. To stop chasing false messiahs. To come and rest. To find in him abundant life. So I plead with you. Don't ignore it. Come and talk to me or one of the elders. We'd love to tell you more about who Jesus is.